Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Space Junk. It's time once again to talk about all things amateur astronomy. And today we are going to really geek out pretty hard on astrophotography because today we have with us is Rogelio Bernal Andreo. He is our guest today. And if you care about astrophotography, then you're going to want to listen to this episode because this guy is amazing. He's got, and we're going to learn all about how he does his uh, astrophotography, do some, learn, hopefully get some tips and techniques from him and uh, just geek out here on taking pictures of the night sky. But before I get started, I need to say, first of all, that I'm Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and with me is Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes. Are you out there, Dustin? Hey, Tony, this is, um, this is really, really exciting for me. Um, I've been looking up to Rogelio for so long. His imaging is, um, if you know, arguably the best in the world. And, um, you know, it, it appears everywhere and we're going to get into that. But first, uh, Rogelio, welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me. It is so good to finally be talking to you. I'm, I'm going to just mention to our listeners, as you're going along with this podcast, if you happen to be at your laptop, please go to deepskycolors.com and check out some of these images because you'll get a sense of what we're talking about. We don't, we're not a visual medium, so we can't show you the images, but follow along if you can, or at least when you get to a pot spot when you can, uh, look his name up and you will see some amazing images. Yeah, it definitely sets the bar. You know, I go there every now and then just to kind of see like, all right, am I progressing? or whatever and then i see these images and i'm just like oh god i have so far to go <laughs> so let's uh let's dive in i have probably ten thousand questions for you rogelio okay so <laughs> okay he sounds he sounds a little bit scared <laughs> he's like this okay. is gonna be this I is gonna be more than an hour <laughs> i didn't study i didn't study for this <laughs> so first um why don't i mean i gotta ask the the basic question which is how did you get into this uh astrophotography well uh i say that we all have uh these moments right where from not perhaps not being interested at all on something to to be interested and maybe embrace it fully. Uh, and so I had this moment with astrophotography that was September 2007. Of course, I remember it very clearly. Um, I was driving with my family down the Pacific Coast Highway uh, south of Big Sur. And then my wife opened the moonroof of the car. She she Then she looked up, she looked, see all these stars. And then she's like, oh, you got to pull over. You have to see this. So, so I pulled over. I mean, we were driving. It was at night, so I couldn't see a thing with the, with the lights of the car. So I get out of there, and, and, and there I was seeing the Milky Way for the very first time in my entire life. I was 35 years old, with, married with two kids. Um, so I was like, what, what, what is this, right? Um, and I happened to have a, a camera. It was one of these cameras that you would bring, uh, you know, to take pictures of, of uh, with your family and stuff. And I'm like, can I can I take a picture of this? It was one of the first things that occurred to me. I had never done any any kind of photography other than family type of pictures. Um, so I take the camera, and and I'm like, okay, so 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 how do I focus, right? <laughs> how can I focus? I I had no idea how to do anything, but don't ask me how. Uh, I mean, I knew I had to take a longer exposure. That that's the only thing that I knew. Uh, it had to be different. Um, so somehow I managed to take a, a shot of the Milky Way, and then when I saw it popping on on the uh, you know on the screen on the camera, um, you know much more vivid than in my eyes, I was like, oh wow! So so that kind of like you know got me intrigued, and I'm like, so but you know can can a regular person like myself take you know these pictures that I've seen sometimes like you know of galaxies and nebulas. Um, so I got, I got very curious about it. Uh, and then the, the next time that I, when we got back home, got on the internet, started to do, uh, searches and then, you know, uh, <laughs> that just, that just did it for me. 
Yeah, it's amazing how that that works, right? Because mine was similar. It was started with the Milky Way, and you see that that first picture pop up. And to people that haven't shot it, it's really hard to explain because it's it really is something that gives you a brand new perspective when you see the Milky Way for the first time. Kind of like you're talking about, you know, you get out of your car, and then at first I thought it was a cloud going overhead, <laughs> right. you know, and you see this this it's so bright and just dense and that density really gives you perspective and then when you take a photo and you can see it clearly kind of like what you see in in pictures you know even the unedited just on the back of the camera will blow you away Mm -hmm. and uh i mean it's for me it was you know a life-changing moment obviously i changed my entire career path and everything and it's been something now if it's clear i'm you know outside imaging and um and it's been that way since, you know, really that first photo. And it sounds like, you know, you've been along for the same kind of ride. Pretty much the same thing. Yeah. And and and, and I got, uh, well, some people say I got obsessed with it. I call it a passion, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's good to use the euphemisms. Right. There you go. Yeah. Especially when there's there's money being spent involved, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, you have... Uh, You've really, I mean, obviously from jumping out of a car and taking a photo of the Milky Way to producing images that now, I mean, there aren't many people that haven't seen your images, even if they don't know it. You know, it's all over television. It's, um, I mean, you have something like, you have over 50 A-pods from NASA, don't you? Something like that, yeah. And that's, that's, for people that don't know, that's about the most prestigious award you're going to get in astrophotography. It's saying that you have the best image in the world that day being awarded by um, by the APOD group, you know, part of which is NASA. And um, yeah, most people, if they get one, they celebrate it forever. It's true. It, let me just say that if, for those of you who don't know what that is, APOD is Astronomy Picture of the Day. And it's been around, as far as I know, since the early 2000s, probably before that. And Actually, 1995. That's when it started. Oh, it started in 95. And if you go to the APOD page, <laughs> you'll notice that it looks exactly like a mid-90s web page. They just haven't done anything with it as far as the making this web page itself all that fancy. Right. But that's fine because you're so busy looking at the image itself. I think that's a, it's actually a good thing. It's a feature because you're more concentrating on the, the image that's being highlighted that day than you are the web page itself. Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, these images have to be flawless. They have to be fantastic to get an APOD award. And, um, you know, you have over 50 of these. <laughs> it's, it's almost funny, man. It really is. It's just, um, it's, it's so incredible. And, you know, we, we have your images popping up here all the time just because a lot of our customers use them for reference. They see these images and then they come to us and say, you know, I want to I shoot something like this. And obviously, in the back of our heads, we're thinking, "Shit, so do we," you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, it's um, it gives people kind of a target, I think, to to kind of aspire to. But it hasn't been that long since you got started. I, I would have assumed you've been doing this much, much longer than what you're saying. You're saying you started in what 2007? Uh, yeah, September 2007 was when I had that. You know that moment with the Milky Way. So and I really got started when I started to, when I when I convinced my wife that I needed to buy some equipment to do these pictures, um, which took a while. And uh, I really started doing astrophotography early 2008. That's when I started. Um, but but this is what happened. So um, so when I when I started, of course, first you need to to learn all the tricks to learn. Uh, the craft and and, and and the equipment and how to take the pictures and then the processing. Um, and, and I had that period. I, I can tell you that for more than a year, um, I was taking pictures that uh, you probably wouldn't, wouldn't pay any attention to. Uh, most people haven't seen those pictures, um, but those who were along with me at the time that they did it and had this, my, my own learning curve. Um, actually, one thing that you may find interesting is that when I finally managed to take my first deep sky picture, which was, of course, Orion, it, it had to be either Orion, Andromeda, or the Pleiades, this one of those, right? Yeah. So, so it was Orion, and most people uh, get excited, but I was extremely disappointed because uh, it was, of course, I don't know, I don't remember, but maybe three, four, five shots with a DSLR and, and some cheap telescope, and 
didn't even know how to really stack. So, you know, my results were really poor. And I'm like, so what, what kind of crap is this? This is not what I want to do. Um, so I don't know if that actually was something, you know, that triggered me to, to, to keep trying. Um, but yeah, I certainly had that, that, that learning period where, where, you know, you try and you fail and, and so on. Why was your first image disappointing? Why did you not like it? What was wrong with it? Um, uh, mostly very noisy, uh, extremely noisy. I, you know, as I stretched, you know, stretching meaning, you know, make the, the image brighter, as you may know. Um, the image to, to, to see what's in there, the, every was, everything was so noisy, there were no details. So it didn't look like anything that I, that I thought it would look like. Um, to me, it was, you know, I was expecting to see something prettier, I guess. And, and, and I would say I got something and, and, and that was it. Uh, mostly the noise uh, and, and the fact that I, I saw something. Oh, I got something, um, but it just didn't look like, like anything that I, that I wanted it to look like, I guess. And then I started to apply heavy noise reduction, which is what every beginner does, right? Mm-hmm. To make it all super soft. Uh, and, and, but I wasn't happy about that either. So, But that got me to go back onto the internet and start asking questions. Hey, what's this and how can I make it better? And, and you know, and people started answering questions. And so I started learning little by little. And, and like I said, I spent a, a good year, year and a half uh, mostly learning. Well, can I ask you guys, this is a question for both of you, and the Orion Nebula is a good example uh, while, we're all, while we're talking about it. I've imaged it many times, and I know just what you mean about being disappointed by the results. And part of the problem, for those of, for those of us who are trying to image Orion, one of the things you'll run across is that it's got a lot of very bright things in it next to a lot of very dim things. For example, the trapezium in the center almost always gets saturated in and, and exposure that you take, especially if you want to see the nebulosity around the, the area. What do you guys have any tricks for fixing that? Do you like take any uh, a combination of exposures? How do you end up with an image that isn't saturating the stars, but still bringing out the nebulosity on the outside? Well, so when I go ahead, Dustin. No, I was going to say, you're going to talk about HDR. You want to explain it or you want me to? Um, uh, I'll go ahead. if you. What's if you HDR, first of all? Go for it. <laughs> um, well, uh, so my answer to your question, Tony, is that, um, which is what you know, Dustin was, was about to mention, um, you do take uh, two different exposures. Uh, one being, uh, and in the case of Orion, maybe just like 15-second exposure. And you take several of those, but you don't go above 15 seconds, maybe 20, 30 seconds, depending on the sensitivity of your camera, your aperture, and so on. And and then you combine that with a, a, a stack of longer exposures, whether that's five-minute subs or 10 minutes or whatever you want to sh- shoot. Um, and then you combine those in an HDR kind of fashion. HDR is a process that, uh, in theory, basically, it compresses the dynamic range that you have. So really bright things can can be uh, a little uh, darker, so you can see better what's in there, and vice versa for the really uh, uh, dark areas. So for Orion, for the Orion Nebula in particular, you have that area that you mentioned around the trapezium. Um, where basically you will blend uh, your 15, 20 second exposures uh, of that area with the rest of the image. But right. you still and have the underlying saturated images, don't you? You can't just co-add them, yeah. right? Um, well, yes, yeah, some, pro- some software can, but HDR stands for high dynamic range. And um, yeah, I mean, it's really an illusion created by doing exactly what he's talking about there, you know, taking two exposures that each is highlighting the portion that you want to. And then when you combine those, obviously, you leave out the parts that are blown out or completely underexposed. And then it kind of gives you that, you know, that compression that he's talking about to where, you know, you have this illusion that the sensor has much better dynamic range than it actually does. So does the software handle that, and I don't have to worry about it then, uh, or do you have to do you have to somehow know how to, you know, scale these images such that the really bright star ones don't get added as much as the fainter starred ones? Well, you have to you have two options. One is there's software that's going to do this for you automatically. You say this is my long exposure uh, master light, and this is my shorter exposure. 
and then you throw those onto the tool and then the tool does it and then it looks fantastic or not depending on you know how how, how the results come out <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. and and you could also do it manually in in a different number of ways as well so it's it's re- entirely up to you but there's definitely tools out there and uh, that can do it for you. Well, give us some uh, ideas. So I, I, I'm being the audience advocate here because I want to help people who are listening thinking, I want to do this too. What should, what kind of tools would you recommend for this kind of co-adding? Uh, well, for HDR blending of deep sky images, what I personally use is PixInsight. I use that uh, for a lot of other things as well. Um, and that's what I would recommend. Um, actually, uh, Several years ago, I did a comparison that I will need to look up, actually, to remember, um, that actually compare different HDR tools um, with precisely with a, with an image of M42, the Orion Nebula. Um, but these were the tools at the time, and this tutorial I wrote it maybe eight years ago. So, uh, you know, there's even more and better tools right now. So I'm, I, I won't say PixInsight is the best one for the job, but it definitely does a really good job in doing it automatically. Um, the HDR thing, the HDR process, yes, yeah, okay. Well, that's- and a lot more. Pix Insight is that, that's what I use as well. Um, it's an incredibly powerful uh, astro imaging editing tool. It can do the majority of what you're going to do to an astro image. Right now, the f- the file format, and I'm, I, we're going, we promise we're going to geek out here, folks. So, <laughs> so the file format that most cameras put out is it still fits images in the brand in the newer cameras. I believe so. Yes. Okay. So, do all of these software packages read the fits images in? Yes. I mean, if it's an if it's a image editing software for specific for astrophotography, if it if they don't handle fits, it's like not handling JPEG for 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 the web. It, yeah, most of I mean, they all do. Yeah. So I just want to mention to people that the FITS is a flexible image transport system, and it was developed by NASA, for, and it is the main astronomical data format for all images. Even Hubble, uh, every single thing that NASA runs you know, takes images in FITS format uh, to later be uh, either used for uh, uh, processing pretty pictures or for uh, calibrating scientific data. And the reason is that each one of the pixels in a FITS image can be assigned a unit in terms of it can have a scientific unit not just a count like you would get from a lot of ccds instead of having a number there like thirty-two thousand, it that they could have a number in there that might be uh 5400 after calibration and that 5400 would be in a unit of say flux or or uh, ergs or something like that so it's a very valuable image format system and these programs read it in and that's what they start with because that's what comes off the camera so the thing with 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 the fits is that as you said is is suitable for um, scientific data as opposed to just uh you know pixel data images um but one one thing that it comes handy for us is uh because really what we're collecting are pixels in in our case um, one, one thing that comes handy for us with, with the FITS is that they have some metadata and that is actually useful for a number of things that we're going to do later with the images. Like it, it normally, it may store like, uh, you know, the temperature of the CCD camera, or, you know, temperature regulated camera that we use at the time of taking the picture. Um, uh, also maybe the coordinates where we were pointing at and other, you know, information that is valuable for us later when you, we do things like calibration and registration and these kind of things with the images. So that comes handy. That's something that, you know, uh, other formats, you know, don't offer. Right. And that's in the, what you're calling, that's in the header unit. There's a, every single fits image has one, has two parts, a header. Uh, it's called a header data unit and it's got a header in it and it's got the data. The header has all this text information in it. What kind of camera? Where were you? Is this a calibration image? Is this an, uh, a data image? It, you can And you can put anything you want in that header. And then it's followed by the data layer, which is the actual image itself. That's the pixel data. And you can stack as many of those HDUs in an image as you want. And those are called data cubes. And you, these can be huge, huge uh, images if you want them to be. So 
Yes. Uh, so that's your introduction into Fitz Data. If you don't know about it, then look it up because that is what the cameras are going to be putting out. <laughs> I knew that we were going to go down some of these rabbit holes today. And, you know, <laughs> I'm just following. I, um, yeah. You know, I want to I want to ask you something because um, I really I take a very different approach to this. Very different. I think that you and I are probably on opposite ends of the spectrum, Rogelio. Okay. Um, you know, you are putting out some of the best work in the world. And when, you know, it's, it's flawless imaging in a lot of ways. My images are, if you blow them up bigger than about an inch by an inch, like, you know, they, they, you, they start to come apart because they're really the only place they're going to work is on Instagram. And they're edited mostly on a cell phone. And it's really about simplifying the process and trying to make it as accessible as possible to as many people as possible to get started. Mm -hmm. And um, I'd like to know what you think about that, because when when someone goes to your page, one of the first things they're going to find when they're reading about you is, you know, you went to Harvard and a few other places, you, you know, you studied computer science and this is very complex stuff that you're doing. Um, even what you guys are talking about now. I mean, for most people, I think that's going to be intimidating to think like, oh, that sounds like a hobby. That's a just a ton of work, you know? And so I want to know your thoughts. Do you think that people have to have a path like that? Or do you think this is something anyone can do? Um, well, um, I can answer that uh, in two ways. One is from my own experience and, and, and the other one from what I've seen others doing, right? Um, in my own experience, um, as you said, I did, uh, you know, I studied computer science, and, and not only that, but while I was doing computer science, um, I was very much attracted to anything related to graphics. Uh, and this is from the very beginning, you know, the early 90s. That's when, when I was going to college from 1990 to 1995. Um, um, you know, at, at the time I was, I was writing silly games where I would have to create the graphics for the game. So I was always involved with colors and tools to create graphics. Back then were extremely simple, you know, pixel level type of simple graphics. Um, but that got me used to an environment that perhaps for somebody who's never done it and say, I want to do astrophotography. And then, you know, it's a whole new world for them in front of them, not just, uh, you know, a whole of different new worlds. Um, so I guess that helped me when, I mean, basically, um, you know, for my entire time in college and afterward, there's always been some sort of uh, graphic application, you know, installed on my computer, whether, you know, back in the days was PaintShop Pro, CorelDRAW, and then, of course, Photoshop and whatnot. Um, so, I've, you know, when it came my time to, oh, I'm capturing, you know, data from a galaxy or a nebula, I need to edit, I need to do stuff with this. Um, it wasn't, a, it was, I wasn't intimidated by, by oh, what's, what's this software? Um, so for me, that was, I guess, easy to get, you know, start from, from, from there, uh, as opposed to from the very beginning. Um, but at the same time, I'll tell you, I've seen people, um, within a year or two, um, from not having this background at all, uh, you know, just using computers, you know, nowadays, like, you know, most people use for, you know, surfing the web and whatnot and get intrigued by astrophotography and embrace it and, and, you know, go really crazy, kind of like what I did back in the days. And, and within a couple of years, you know, they're, they're really producing really, really, really great stuff. So I wouldn't say it's a requirement. I think it helped me um, maybe get uh, onto, you know, getting better results faster. Um, but again, I've seen some people who, who I, I don't know if, you, if they're born with it or whatever, but, um, so I don't see that as a requirement as well. So I guess you can have both. But if you have some experience, that's going to help you, of course. Yeah, you know, I, I would agree. I've seen people, um, and, and it's funny because it's people with technical backgrounds that I've seen do extremely well with astrophotography. And then the, the other extreme is true artists, like people that paint um, or people that just spend a ton of time doing graphic design or something like that, you know, once they collect the data, what they do with it is absolutely incredible. And, um, it really can go, you know, it can go really well with either side, I feel like. So it's one of the few hobbies. I feel like that's the case that you can be completely different types of people and still produce phenomenal results. It definitely, it definitely has, and I'm sure you know. You you must have mentioned this in other podcasts because because it's so it's a classic, and that astrophotography really is 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 a it's a blend of 
of art and science. In, in it in is definitely a technical. You need you need some sort of technical background, um, but at the same time, you need to have uh, something uh, that you can you know bring that raw data into something that 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 is what you wanted to create in the first place, and that's the artistic so, process. Absolutely, yeah. Do you? I think that there are probably a lot of uh, astrophotographers that look up to you and your work. Do you have astrophotographers that you look up to or that you admire their work? Uh, well, I I mean, I like the work of, of many people. And, and probably mentioning just a few uh, wouldn't be fair um, to the mm -hmm. others. Um, right. but, but, you know, taking on your question... Um, one thing that I've been asked sometimes is, you know, is there is there anybody who who has inspired you? And 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 I bring it up because it's funny. Um, it comes out as a disappointing answer because I, as I started doing astrophotography, I was looking at what I had available at the time, um, which wasn't a lot uh, compared to today. Um, you know, but I saw the images from Tony Hallas or uh, Adam Block, uh, Robert Gendler, and and I liked them. Um, yeah, yeah. but then when I started doing my photography, I really didn't, I wasn't looking after, I want my pictures to look like these guys or that guy, or even a particular image. I, you know, I just wanted to, and, and I don't want to say I wanted to see what I could do, even though that's true. Um, but more kind of like, oh, there's this object here and I want to see it, uh, perhaps in a way that I haven't seen it before. And then that's what I was going after. Um, so, so do I like the work of, of many people? Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's, and there's more and more, more, more people. Um, sure. But it's funny that at the same time, I really didn't have, you know, uh, you know, a role, role model or someone that I want, you know, as an inspiration to produce my work. So. It's funny that you mentioned those three because, again, those are three of the best imagers in the world. And um, your work really doesn't resemble theirs at all. You definitely have a completely different style, I'd say, than all three of them. So um, that's interesting that those were the pictures that you were seeing when you were getting started. Well, it's, it's what it was available. I mean, there were them and, 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 you know, I could name, you know, three, four, five, seven other people, but not, not, not that many that I remember at the time, really. How can astrophotography have a style? Aren't we all just taking pictures of the Pleiades and Orion Nebula? I mean, how how can you tell one astrophotographer's image from another? Um, well, that's a good question because um, people have said of my images that I have a style. And that happened, uh, I mean, people told me before I realized I had a style. Um, which now I acknowledge because that's what people say. <laughs> so it's kind of funny. Um, I mean, I uh, like I said, um, there was a point in as I was doing astrophotography again. So, so I had this period where you know you don't know what you're doing. You are learning. You're getting better and better. Um, and when all these you know technical challenges were more or less under control, um, you know, I got to a setup that I you know I was more in control. And then being at the mercy of whatever, you know, the, the equipment decides to do. Um, then uh, I started to, to, to look at, a, a, at my, so I'm thinking, what am I going to take a picture of next? And, and rather than just an object, I wanted a view. And with a view, once I set up the view, I want to look at this. And, and, and when I say a view, uh, I mean, I was almost deliberately but but i think it was more of a natural reaction i was trying to stay away from taking images of x object in the middle type of photograph which is what everybody else was doing no well, not maybe not everybody but almost everybody else was doing at the time and uh, you know I, and i joke you guys were not doing astrophotography you were building catalogs you know and <laughs> so composition then is exactly. part of it Exactly. Yeah, okay. I started to look for views like and, and, and always trying, not always, but most of the time, trying to combine more than one object or two and, and looking at it more on a, you know, like a landscape type of photography. You know, so these objects here and that objects here so I could frame them like these and it will look good. 
Oh, uh, I am so glad you brought up the landscapes because I am looking at your tw at your Flickr feed. Sorry, and this is on Flickr, guys. So it's deep sky colors as usual. And oh my God, these are beautiful photos. <laughs> I mean, these landscapes are unbelievable. I mean, and I love the 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 tropical islands in the foreground, and then you've got the 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 just rich night sky behind it. Talk about those a little bit. How do you take those? Okay, so yeah, I've done a lot of those, mostly because they are much faster than than produced. Are they? Oh wow, that's not well, an answer well, I expected to hear. Uh, when I say faster, uh, yeah, maybe I should clarify. I mean, a single picture on in some remote area in you know in the middle of this valley, it's not a twenty second thing. Obviously, you need to go to the place, you know, the right time and so on. So oftentimes it takes planning and, 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 and a lot of effort uh, and time. But uh, what I so, so but, but anyway, let me start from the beginning and, and we'll get to that. So I was doing uh, a lot of deep sky photography. And, and then at some point, um, you know, while you're doing deep sky photography, you are sitting there next to your, you know, your your equipment doing nothing. So one of the things that I started doing to kill time was, you know, took my DSLR camera and a tripod and started taking pictures maybe of my equipment with a Milky Way on the back or whatever I had around me, except that usually where I go to do deep sky photography doesn't have like really beautiful landscapes. You basically want low horizons, that type of thing. So, um, but then I started to like also taking this little, you know, wide field lands landscape, night landscape photography, phot phot photographs. Um, and then I realized, wait, where, where do I live? I'm here in Northern California. I have some of the most amazing landscapes in the world, you know, within hours reach. Um, so one, one night I said, I'm going to go a couple of nights to Yosemite and, and, you know, just shoot away whatever I found. I never, I had never been to Yosemite before, even though I've been living in California for over 20 years. Um, and this was like seven years ago or so. So, so I went on to that night and then I went to all the, you know, iconic locations and shot here, shot there. Um, so in one night I came out with maybe five, six, seven, eight different shots. And, and, and this goes back to your question, why so many uh, in compared to Deep Sky? Because, uh, for example, my mosaic of the Orion constellation, that took me months to take. Because that's like a huge mosaic. It's... Um, seven by seven so it's 49 different panes um to build the entire orion you know image um so that takes you know many nights just for a single picture um whereas doing night landscape photography or nightscapes as we call them um you know you can do a whole bunch of them in a night uh or two so um so and i started liking it and i started you know, I started enjoying visiting all these you know all these beautiful locations and you know trying to capture them you know, however I, you know, however I could. So I became really prolific at that um, for for several years. You know, while still doing some deep sky photography at the same time. So let's let's geek out on the uh, the equipment for a second. I'm an equipment junkie, <laughs> and looking at your your systems, um, the easy one to describe is probably your landscape system. Let's start there. What what do you use for these landscapes? Um, for like night landscape photography, right? Um, well, uh, for from the moment I started back in 2011, 2012, I was using a Canon 5D Mark II as my DSLR camera. In fact, at some point I had two of them. Um, when I went to Hawaii, I went to Hawaii for you know a huge adventure, you know, to photograph all the islands at night. Actually, brought two uh, Canon 5D Mark IIs. I have a, a cheap tripod. I, I, you know, it's somewhat sturdy. I really need to buy a better one, <laughs> um, but I guess it does the work, right? And that's that's my equipment. But then, about a couple a couple of years ago, um, I actually I wouldn't say I retired my Canon, but that's what the camera fields have done with her, because um, I bought the Sony A7S uh, DSLR, which I absolutely love. I mean. The body of the camera feels very fragile, as if you drop it, you can say goodbye to the camera. Um, but it takes formidable images, and it's so sensitive you can focus on the stars at night, you know, on, on the on the back LED camera. Uh, I mean, screen. So, so I'm loving it, and it's really, I mean, 
every time I go now to take nightscape photography, I bring both my Canon and my Sony, but I'm really, I've really openly been used my Sony camera for the last couple of years. Okay. Well, that, that really, um, that, that brings me to my question that I wanted to ask. So these nightscapes, they have the, the, the background stars and the foreground landscape. These are, they're not, uh, taken in different places in different times or are and is the stars that you see behind the landscape are they accurate to that location or are they just being photoshopped together from two different well exposure in my runs yes so in my case um every single night landscape photography that i've published it's not a composite in the sense of what you're saying you take the landscape at one time or at certain condition and then the stars and another and then you blend them together none of them are except about two or three that i can remember oh that makes uh, me more extraordinary then <laughs> well it's it's how i like doing it now i will tell you um because sometimes people sometimes people have told uh, you know like you post something on 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 social media and there's always somebody who wants to you know, write some happy comments about it uh, yeah. and go like, oh, that's uh, Photoshop or that's composite. And and I'm like, well, it's not. Um, but because what I do is I do take, you know, what we would call a single shot. But when I do the editing, the processing, I do process land and sky separately. Almost, I would say almost every single time. So they all come, it's not a composite. Again, you know, I have over a thousand night landscape photographies, and I'm telling you that I know two or three are composites and the other are not. Um, but I do edit, you know, those two elements separately because to me, they, you know, that's how I can bring, you know, bring them to a contrast that I like where, you know, this. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm sorry. I just want to say the dynamic range then, it must be a real issue or like what we were talking about with the Orion Nebula again, because the, the landscape would be very bright compared to very dim stars. Is that a function of the, the, the quality of the Sony a7S camera you're using or? The thing is that sometimes, um, it's actually the opposite. Um, the sky will be bright and the, and the landscape will be dark. Um, it really depends on the situation. Um, if you are shooting at a, at a Milky Way uh, with some mountains in the foreground and there's absolutely no moon, no lights, um, you know, your challenge is going to be able to bring up uh, the landscape because it's going to be really, really dark unless there's, there's some sort of light. Um, oh, whether I wouldn't have thought that. Interesting. Yeah, and so the, the A7S that you're using, so you sacrificed resolution to get bigger pixels and sensitivity then? Because that's only 11 megapixels across the same size sensor as your, what, whatever the other one is, 34 or 36, right? Yeah, that's true. Uh, um, but to me, I mean, uh, you know, you, you weigh the pros and cons and um, it's just so fun to use. I mean, for me, at least. Uh, again, and I will repeat it because for me, that's, you know, one thing that I actually don't like at all is, you know, the body being so, you know, so I don't want to say clumsy, but, you know, really fragile type of looking. Right. It's not a sturdy type of camera. Um, but other than that, I mean, yeah, I, I definitely love it. And you're using a full frame CCD as well, right? Yes. Yes. The, the S-Big uh, STL 11000. So those are big, uh, I think like nine micron pixels. So you have very sensitive chips. Let's, uh, let's talk about the CCD, like the differences, because that's obviously a much more complex system. I mean, when I shoot landscapes, I'm usually doing it off the hood of my car, you know, for Milky Way or whatever. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it really doesn't take much. You can do a long exposure. If you're shooting at short focal length, you don't even have to track. Um, and so with the deep space things, I mean, you're talking about, you said one of those was 49 panels. So for people that don't know what that means is that's 49 images all tracked of a very specific area of the sky. And these 49 images are taken individually and then combined afterward piece by piece so that it creates one huge image so that you can get the entire Orion constellation or or whatever it is in the sky that you're trying to shoot on a much, much wider scale. Um, but to do that, I guess to cut down on time, you had a creative solution. Um, do, you, do you think I did? <laughs> well, I mean, you're not, uh, so you're, you have two identical systems, right? Oh, right, yeah, that's what you mean. Yeah, that's true, that's correct. And how, how does that work? 
Um, well, yeah, so what you're referring is that basically uh, as opposed to shooting one camera and one telescope, I have two telescopes uh, in parallel shooting at the same time with two cameras, basically the, the same identical system twice. Um, and yeah, and that definitely, I mean, that saves me half of the time. It helped me double the time, you know, the acquisition time that I do on a single night. When I go out to image with my friends, you know, maybe we have a five, you know, five hour window. And then when we're done, I'm like, well, I'm going home with 10 hours, guys. And then, you know, then I get them <laughs> to love me a little more. <laughs> right, right. So have you seen this, Tony? Do you know? No, what I haven't. About? No, so, is, that, is it? I just want to ask real quick while we're on that subject. Is it are both systems parallel looking at adjacent areas of the sky or are they looking at the same area of the sky at the very at the very same area so okay. so basically yeah and and the way that i'm using them most of the time um so my camera my ccd cameras are monochrome which means i have to take um you know i have to use a filter wheel with red green and blue filters um plus one of luminance which tends to help you know save time actually um so the way that i i'm normally using both telescopes is in one telescope, I'm shooting luminance constantly, one sub, then another, and then another, and go on, and so on. And while the other telescope is looping through my RGB filter, first it's shooting one of R, one of green, one of blue, and so on, and so on. So basically, I'm capturing luminance and color at the same time. Do you ever shoot narrowband? Um, I only shoot H-alpha out of all the narrowband, you know, commonly used filters, Mm -hmm. um for two reasons um one is because that's the only filter that i own <laughs> um, well, <do> but, <laughs> <laughs> but but that also comes out of an interest because uh i really enjoy the photography that comes out of uh you know broadband colors rgb but i do use but i do use the h alpha for those elements i mean for those objects that are you know very strong on on, on hydrogen alpha signal um, so that helped me boost, you know, um, RGB type of images. So I use H-alpha for that. Then there's sulfur-2 and oxygen-3, which are more used in combination with H-alpha. Um, but I don't use those because, again, all my images are on, on broadband color. And that's what I like. So um, it's right. not that I don't like narrowband, but that's what I'm doing right now and what I'm enjoying. So probably will continue for a while. I guess the downside to that, though, is that the moon and, you know, city lights are a pretty big problem for you then. I mean, you can only shoot when the when it's a new moon or when you're, you know, pretty far away from the cities. That's right. Yes. And uh, well, it's something that I got used to. Um, I live in Sunnyvale, uh, Northern California. This is on the San Francisco Bay Area. So. You know, this is a wide area according to the borough scale. So I can't do anything unless narrowband. <laughs> Not that great either, but I can't do anything here. I always have to take my car and drive to a place. I don't own any remote place, uh, you know, that I could operate it from home. Um, so I drive away. I feel, I guess I feel lucky that even though I live on a wide area, uh, you know, in terms of light pollution, um, within an hour and a half, I mean, within an hour, I can see the Milky Way. Within an hour and a half, I get to fairly, really decent skies. Um, at least in one or on another direction of the sky. Maybe there's one, you know, crappy area, <laughs> um, but there's always. And then if you go two hours, then you know, I'm, I'm on really, you know, I, I don't need more. I say any, anything darker is just for bragging. Really, this is right. great. This right. is great. So you know, if it takes one hour and a half or two hours. I got used to do it, so it became part of my routine. So I do it, and and I get the goodies that 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 I deserve from doing the drive. So. <laughs> yeah, that's right, that's right. Um, yeah, so I uh, I agree with you. I really like the um, the RGB images, the red, green, blue images, all the broadband stuff because the colors are a true color. Um, but ninety nine percent of my shooting is actually. Um, narrowband. So I do shoot hydrogen alpha, sulfur, and oxygen. And the reason is because I feel like most people, you know, it's, it's easy for us out here in California to get to dark skies relatively easily. But if you look at a dark sky map, the east, the entire east side of the country, basically everything east of the Mississippi, it's a, it's a chore. I mean, sometimes you have to leave an entire state to get to, to get to decent skies to where you can shoot 
broadband the way we do here. And um, so the thinking was, you know, if we can start shooting these things from cities with narrowband, then really it opens the door to a lot more people and try to push this into a simple way of imaging from any backyard in the country instead of just, you know, dark skies like we're kind of spoiled with around here. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Yes. And, and, And it's not that I don't like uh, narrowband images, uh, I like seeing them. Um, it's just that, you know, it, it, I got my, I guess, my style, um, but absolutely. And, and you're totally right. I, I tend to joke, and I hope nobody gets offended by this, and that people in the UK need to leave the country to get to really good skies. Yeah, um, it's true. Uh, it's and it's, 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 it's probably almost true, and not just for the UK, for, but for other countries as well. And like you said, some people need to leave their state. And, and, and yeah, and they should, uh, you know, that doesn't mean they shouldn't enjoy the, the, the hobby. So, yeah, I'm not against narrowband. It's more, you know, more describing of, of, of my images. Yeah. yeah, people give me so much hell on my Instagram. And, you know, it, it's funny because it's usually um, I get a lot of messages from, um, you know, photographers kind of like yourself, like some some top level photographers that um, even some that you've already named in this that just shoot me messages, just kind of picking at me, you know, saying like, we, we were talking about style earlier and they're like, oh, yeah, your style is, you know, rings around the stars, oh. and, you know, noise reduction to hell and back and all this <laughs> stuff. And it's like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Don't don't be jealous right now. You know, but <laughs> I get um, I get a lot of hell for the narrowband as well, because the colors, you know, the signal is so high with narrowband because, I mean, you're shooting a very, very small sliver of an individual color. Like when you talk about um like shooting broadband, you're talking about shooting all of, say, red, the color red. But then hydrogen alpha is an extremely narrow sliver of that. I mean, some of these filters are three nanometers of mm-hmm. that. And so you can shoot right through most light pollution and get, you know, extremely high signal. So the images pop, but the colors are off from, you know, true color. And so, you know, people people joke about the images being cartoony or whatever it is, but I've at first I, I kind of agreed and the more I've done it, the more I've really, it's really grown on me. And, um, you start, you know, you start to really start to, uh, you know, kind of appreciate the detail that comes out in narrowband images that it's just nearly impossible to get without it, especially hydrogen alpha. Right. Well, narrowband has this magic, right? Uh, and it's really amazing that, you know, in the middle of a really light polluted city, you get a you know, a, a bit of a sky and then then you can actually take really, you know, fairly good signal with a lot of contrast because of these narrowband filters. So 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 I guess that's that's a, a bit of a wow thing for people, you know, that that they can do that. Another thing about uh, narrowband imaging, though, is that the and one of the reasons they look different than a broadband image is that the features you're seeing are generally highlighted differently than they would be in a broader band filter. For example, if you could imagine a filter that lets you turn a knob and you could go all the way from blue down through green and and into red and then all the way into the infrared and as you and you and you could see this with your eye, if let's say you're looking at the Horsehead Nebula which the uh, uh, Hubble Space Telescope has done this kind of imaging. Imagine going all the way from the optical into the infrared. You, what you would see is actually different because what's causing these things to glow in these wavelengths is actually different. So uh, the horse head would look completely different in one wavelength versus another wavelength. And if you could imagine a filter that lets you tune that back and forth, you would see things come into the field of view and then out. You'd see things, you'd see features pop up and then disappear. And so when you're looking at a narrow band filter, like say oxygen, uh, the, the very narrow wavelength band is going to only let certain features come through. Whereas a broader filter like red would let more features come through. So it's always a trade-off, but it's, but Dustin's right. I mean, the payoff is awesome in the amount of signal you get in a very light polluted area. So it's, there's really no other way to do it if you're in downtown uh, New York city, right? (laughs) Right. Yeah. 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 (laughs) 
Which we will be very soon. We're doing our New York uh, Times Square shooting again in April. So um, I haven't oh, officially announced that on Instagram yet, but I guess this is that official You've announcement. You've just done it. <laughs> you heard it here <laughs> yeah. first, folks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're doing that in April, and it looks like the city's approving it this time. But um, I wanted to... <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, as opposed to last time where the cops showed up, right? <laughs> yeah, I got thrown out by the, the t- counterterrorism squad, but, you know, shit happens. Oh, well. So whatever. <laughs> whatever. So... Um, yeah, you know, I actually stole your idea, Rogelio. We've never talked about this, but when I saw your two systems, it's like, that makes a lot of sense. Two telescopes with exactly the same, so exactly the same telescopes with exactly the same cameras uh, riding on top of one mount. So just side by side on one mount pointed at the same thing. So you're doubling your image data. I stole that idea and put uh, two Teleview 127ISs with two full-frame CCDs behind it and um, shot it from here at the store. Me and Travis Burke just sat down one night and shot uh, the horse head in portrait. So it was kind of like a, you know, the cameras turned completely sideways, shot a portrait of them. And it's actually the most shared image I've ever taken. Um, I mean, that thing just kind of exploded across the internet. It was like a million views in a couple of days. Um, Yeah, but uh, it was... It was completely stolen from you. <laughs> no, you no, no. I'll tell you, I wasn't copying anybody, but I don't claim to have invented, you know, the, and actually I'm sure I have not, you know, the two telescopes in parallel. Um, to me, it was a funny thing because um, I, watch, I, I wasn't planning on having two telescopes together. It's just that, so I'm originally from Spain, so I, I sometimes I've been traveling to Spain a lot, and, and there was a time that I was being there very often, so I actually got me a, a full setup there and a full setup here. Uh, you know, same equipment, same camera and everything. But then there was a time that I stopped going there as often, so I'm going to bring it back. And then that's when I'm like, what am I going to do? Sell it? No, I'm going to put them together. Uh, and, and, and I'm definitely taking advantage of, of you know, the time-saving feature more than anything else. Right. Yeah, well, I'm, I am absolutely going to keep stealing the things yeah. you do, and so yeah, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna put four systems now and tell everybody it was my idea. Right. <laughs> well, only only someone who sells telescopes could do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna be like Rogelio, who? Go for six. Yeah, what is this? I got ten. Well, tell me tell me about the mount for this. How do you drive these parallel systems? Uh, the mount that I use is uh, the Takahashi EM400. Um, it's not the most popular of the bunch, um, at least not in the circles that I move. Most people tend to have, you know, astrophysics, um, higher, and, you know, paramount and whatnot. Um, but this came from a suggestion that I received when I was truly starting. I went, this is this is 2008, and I went onto an astrophotography forum and I said, I want to get into astrophotography, and I have $10,000. Uh, can you recommend me what to buy? I mean, that's me. You understand? <laughs> this was <laughs> my super very beginnings. And then, one, so I, by the way, I got a lot of criticism. Well, you're crazy. You're going to spend $10,000. You still don't know if you're going to like it. But, you know, one person actually answered the question. And he said, well, I would spend at least 70% on the mount, which to that's me was advice. like. Yeah. And to me was like, What? Right. It's like, you know, the camera, the telescope. Hello. And, um, but yeah, it makes all the sense in the world because, you know, you know, the best camera and best telescope in the world on a crappy mount is not going to get you anything. Whereas, you know, a, a good mount and an OK camera and an OK telescope, well, at least you'll get something. So and then at that moment, there was this guy who just put his EM400 for sale for $7,000. And I'm like, well, 10,000, 70 percent, 70. So I went for it. Um, but it's the mount that I'm still using. So I've changed telescopes. I've changed cameras. Um, it holds the load that I put on it without a sweat. Um, I got to know it. Um, so as long as I don't either go into a permanent observatory, which I don't think this mount will be as good as others, um, or, or unless I add more weight, which I don't think so, um, it's still, you know, my power horse. It, it does what I wanted to do, and uh, it, it does it marvelously. 
I hope you guys listen to that. That that is such great advice because a mount that that treats you well, that makes your night at the telescope easy, will pay itself back in so many ways. <laughs> so it'll make your experience a lot better. I heard earlier in the in the podcast you refer to your camera. I don't know if it was the Canon or the Sony as a her or a she, <laughs> but, <laughs> but eventually you're going to feel that way about your mount as well because <laughs> it's that it's that important as far as making good images. I think. So. It is, yes. Absolutely. Well, you spend a lot of time with this equipment. You know, all astrophotographers do. You get very attached to it. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll tell you one thing. Uh, so I started doing, so uh, so I got my FSQ, the Takahashi FSQ. This is the telescopes that I still have, but two of them. Um, I got this like in 2008, 2000, the end of 2008. Yeah, actually, that's when I got it, December 2008. And... And then you know you you know the dark voices that try to put you down started telling me, oh yeah, you're doing wide field. That's easy. It gets really tough when you get into bigger focal lengths. Uh, you know, kind of like downplaying what I was doing. Uh, you know, wide field. That's easy. Um, but here's what happened: is that I started loving. I mean, I love you know the fact that I could. Get my, you know, set up my, you know, all my, all my gear, you know, up, up on a mountain top, um, within half hour, start rolling in another half hour, get, you know, good data without sweating, you know, I don't have to worry about collimation, I don't have to worry, you know, about all the things, you know, I don't need the guiding to be extremely precise because I'm shooting sort of wide, you know, uh, short focal length, um, and and I and I got excited about what I was doing and I wanted to get bigger and bigger, so you know, people were telling me that's not. The, how the learning curve goes. The learning cur curve is about getting onto higher focal length. And I stay on the same, you know, 400 millimeter focal length for all these years. And, and, and I enjoyed every second of it. So, you know, that goes, that goes to those <laughs> who told me. Yeah. And, and then people say, and then you got, you know, really good at it, which I guess is what happens if you keep doing something, you know, for a long time and, you know, you keep challenging yourself. So, yeah, so I love Whitefield and I'm still doing it. Doesn't mean that I don't like, I wouldn't like to get longer focal length. It's something that I actually, uh, because I haven't done much of it, it's a challenge, but not something that I want to do, you know, loading it on my, on the, you know, on my trunk and, and drive to some places. That would have right. to be in a different way. Well, we need to get you logged into the OPT remote observatories. You know, we have like a 17-inch plane wave in one and a lot of long focal length scopes. Actually, we just got in the first Takahashi RC, um, FRC 300 ever made, serial number 001. So everybody right. everybody here is kind of like freaking out about it, you know. But uh, well, we're putting that one in an observatory as well. But we need to get you logged in and let you play with some of the longer yes, focal length stuff and just <laughs> – yeah. Yes, yeah, you do. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I think it'd be amazing to see, you know, because yeah, I mean, putting panel or big mosaics together with something like that would be absurd. <laughs> yeah, know, just how much detail would be. Yeah, coming yeah. Out I, I I dream about certain objects, you know, at a long focal length that they've been imaged, you know, beautifully already. But I'm like, no, but let's go deeper. You know, because right. people have, have focus on the details, which is what you get, you know, usually when you're doing longer focal lengths. And I'm like, yeah, but you can get details and you can go deeper and deeper and deeper. And, you know, that's exactly. that's one of the things that drives me as well. You know, hey, I've seen this object. Can we get deeper? I know there's some stuff there, you know, get a different view or something new or, you know, at least the challenge is exciting. Well, um, before we run out of time, I just want to ask you one more question. And that has to do with the fact that you, your images have been, everywhere as we've talked about at the top of the podcast from astronomy magazine it's been on the bbc national geographic i w and i found i read on the internet that it's e your some of your images have even been in the remake of cosmos what is that like how does that i mean tell us a story about how that something like that might happen how do you uh, get your, your well I, I i was as shocked as you so that's 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 my short <laughs> that's my short answer um I was contact and and I once remember the name and I and I think I remember but I don't want to get it wrong so I won't say it um, by somebody um, and if I get this right it was from actually from the you know Hubble Heritage team that processed the, the the Hubble images and telling you know contact me hey we're doing 
uh, they didn't say a remake of Cosmos. They did. Uh, it was described as an astronomy TV program or something. It wasn't, you know, they didn't give me that that clue. Um, and then and, uh, and and they were asking to use an image that I had of Orion, but this was before my whole Orion constellation image. So this this image was um, one that I took in two thousand and eight. It wasn't honestly. It really wasn't that good. Um, and if I dig out and share it with you, you would agree. Um, and they wanted to use that image to basically create, uh, use it as part of a flyby that they were going to do in the movie, in the, oh no, sorry, I'm mistaking with the Hubble 3D, uh, movie. I'm sorry. I'm telling you a different story. <laughs> That's all you right. Just, That's a good story because I think I know who you talked to. You talked to Zolt LeVay. Who, uh, Zolt, Zolt or Lisa. I don't remember. Or Lisa. Who. Yeah, Lisa Fratare. Uh, yeah. Those those two, I used to work with them at the Institute. They are the, they were, uh, Zolt has since retired, but uh, Lisa, I think, is still there. So. Right. Yeah. No, and this, this was the story about when they contacted me for the Hubble 3D movie and then they used that Orion picture. Um, uh, that, yeah, by the way, it was an IMAX movie, wasn't it? The Hubble. Yeah, yeah it was. And it was, yep. it was really cool to see, you know, I mean, the, the movie is really amazing. You know, I'd love to be able to do that kind of stuff. <laughs> oh yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's really cool. Um, yeah. So they, they, so these people, when they want to use your stuff, whether it's Sky Intel or National Geographic, they, they, uh, they just reach out and say, Hey man, we want to use your stuff. That's right. Yep. That's that's what they do. You get you get an email, and uh, you know they'll give you whatever details they want to give you, and uh, and sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. You know, once once I got a a message from Apple, they wanted to use one of my images from uh, Yosemite um, as you know one of their you know marketing thing. They they basically wanted to buy the the image, um, but it, in the end, it didn't happen. So sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. Wow. So all these astronomy pictures of the day, uh, uh, features, and then I don't know. I I feel like you kind of arrived when Apple wants to use your stuff on their on their. Uh, your well, they did not software. in that particular case. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's really great. Okay. Well, is there any final advice that you could give us? Well, before we sign off here, uh, somebody looking to get started in 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 astrophotography, what would you say to them now? Um, well, uh, I find that, you know, these last moment, you know, last words, um, tend to try to, to, to be like the most meaningful ones. Um, <laughs> but in my case, um, uh, there's one thing that I, we were talking about before about style, and and that I wanted to say, which is, um, you really do whatever you want. Um, like everybody says, if, you know, if what you're doing, it's uh, it's legal, you know, you don't do anything illegal and you don't lie about what you're doing, then and you can really do anything you want. Um, but when when it comes to your goals, I, uh, my suggestion is if you can look at things, I mean, this is what I did. So it's I guess it's easy for me to say um, when you look at other people's images, um, you know, you don't have to want to, you know, do what they're doing. Just try to uh, set your own goals. The way that I do my images is I'm going to do this object and then I'm going to see how good it comes out. Before I go for it, I set a goal. I want it to look, you know, this good or that good. And many times I don't reach that goal, but I'm, you know, I'm very goal oriented as opposed to I'm just going to do this object and I'm going to, you know, throw hours and this. You do the planning, but I also, you know, I, I also try to picture what is it that I want? And then if I need something, if I fall, if I fall short, like, oh, I, I should have got more data, then I go and get more data. Or I'm not really good at, you know, some part of the processing. I don't know how to do this. Then I try to learn how to do that. Oh, I want this view and it takes me 49 panes, you know, different panes on a mosaic as opposed to just, you know, spending a couple of nights. Then I'm going to spend that time. So I think if, if you can find that kind of drive in yourself, of, I'm going to set a goal for an image and I'm going to try to reach that goal. And if your goal is simple, then, you know, you stay whatever you want to stay. But I guess, you know, that's one thing that I don't see many people do, uh, you know, setting a specific goal or a vision of what they want to do on the next picture. So, you know, you have that. And then if you if you accomplish it, great. And if not, that's fine. It's also a learning experience. And, you know, maybe it still looks really great. So. Wow. So you already, that's, that sounds like how an artist might approach a painting. You already have something in your mind's eye of what you're trying to accomplish before you even start. 
um, yeah, I do that. Um, but then I don't try to drive the image. You know, I don't force the image. I mean, the image is going to, I don't want to sound too corny, but the image one needs to talk to me. I'm not going to force the image to, you know, to look like something that is not. Um, but, you know, because you have so many references out there about, you know, what's out there, uh, you can have a picture. Like, for example, when I did the Simis 147, this is a supernova remnant. It's huge and really faint. You know, I picture I need to make it so that, you know, it really stands out. And if I can get some background dust, you know, um, let's go for that. So, you know, I did, you know, I took my data so that I could try to achieve that goal. And then, you know, I did my processing also with that goal in mind. And, and it kind of like came came out like that. Um, so, yeah, it's a bit of, a, uh, of uh, the way you would approach a painting, except that, um, you know, you still work with data that, that comes to you. You don't have, you know... Again, you can do whatever you want, but I do set my own limits when it comes to that. Dustin, do you have anything to add before we go? No, no. We, um, <laughs> I've got a lot to think about. That, um, <laughs> you know, pushing, pushing images in that way is really what excites me. And seeing this stuff come out, I always look forward to seeing the new images. And um, I've been pushing things, like for me, it's been about time recently. Like I want to see exactly what you were mentioning a second ago, which is like, how deep can you go on an image? You know, I just did 90 hours on the Helix and still processing it. I mean, it's, it's got a lot to do, but um, it's, it's fun to take images that I've seen before and just put a ton of time into them and see how much is actually there. Like how much can you pull out of something? And so that's kind of been the, uh, the idea, but I, I really like your approach, approaching it more like you would landscape photography, which is find the view and then go after that view, regardless of what it takes as far as panels or, you know, time or whatever, and just create that. I think that, yeah, you're right. More people should be doing that because that's how you do regular photography. And, and that's, um, that's a fantastic approach to this type as well. Right. One, one, one example that I like using, and I know we're short of time, um, um, it's like if you go to Paris and you take a picture of the Eiffel Tower, you could take, you know, a picture that is extremely beautiful for you. You took it. But it's absolutely not memorable for anybody but yourself because you took it. It tells nothing to nobody. But if you find maybe an interesting angle to take the, the, the picture or maybe with a tree in front or with some light effect or with the moon behind if it happens to be or something else, then you start to make the picture more memorable, right? And that's what I sometimes, again, it's not so deliberate that I try to make a picture memorable, but I definitely try to identify things that will make a difference so that then I'm more motivated to go for it. I'm chasing a view that I haven't seen and I want to see it, period. That's, that's, that's my drive. All right. Well, that's great. Well, I hope you guys have enjoyed our little podcast today. Uh, this was a great dive, deep dive into astrophotography. I was having a lot of fun. This was this was great. So uh, thank you so much. Our guest today was Rogelio Bernal Andreo, and he is uh, – you've got to go check out his stuff, folks. Go to deepskycolors.com. Look at his Flickr uh, uh, tweet. Are you on – got to be on Instagram too, right? Uh, yes, Deep Sky Colors. Same thing. Ah, okay. So there you go. All right. So uh, I guess, uh, well, we did another one, Dustin. This has been a great, this has been a great podcast. Uh, thanks. Thanks for bringing Rogelio to us. Yeah. And Rogelio, I know we've got, uh, we got plans to do some, some big stuff soon. And I'm sure that we'll get you back on here to talk about some of that. So um, exciting stuff. Thank you again for coming on. Oh, you're, you're, you're almost welcome. Thank you. And uh, yeah, let's do it again whenever, whenever you want to. I can't wait. Okay. Well, thank you so much. And thank you guys for listening. And as always, keep looking up. Space Junk was produced by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California, in partnership with Deep Astronomy. Please send feedback and questions to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com.